We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. You are listening to the Gator Nation Football Podcast after glorious, no, ugly, Yes, maybe one of the weirdest and least inspiring games I've ever watched. But you know what? It's still a victory. I'm James DiVirgilio alongside Alan Williams. Welcome to the Gator Nation Football Podcast. It's great to have you alongside of us during what's going to wind up being a bye week. We have a ton of stuff to cover. Alan, what's your mood right now? I'm loving it. You're right. It was one of the dumbest games I've ever watched. But... You know, that's part of the amazingness of college football. Insanity ensues. That's why we watch. And I am so much happier with a win than showing up. No matter how we played, getting a win opening day against Miami, huge. We know that you're all itching to dive into the analysis, which we have done. We've watched all the film. We've broken down each and every play. We have a bunch of great insights to share with you. But first, if you like the content, if you like this podcast, like us on Facebook, leave us a rating on iTunes. But most importantly, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. We had several new patrons last week we want to recognize, give them some love. John Hotman and my dad, Doug DiVirgilio, coming in. The Doug. He's coming in, coming in hot. Appreciate that, Dad. Uh, Medium Dono from Jeff Wilson. And then Kevin Davis the second. Appreciate you guys so much. Love the support you give us. You too can be a supporter on Patreon. It's pretty awesome. You just ask Alexander Leventhal, who's from start to finish, from wire to wire, has been our top supporter each and every single week. The king. He is the king. Uh, A new category, if you want to come at the king, is the hundo bomb category. Right? You can give a dono or a donation, or you can drop a hundo bomb. I feel like all these words are so great. Like The world we live in allows me as a grown man to use these absurd words and descriptors. But hey, what's a hundo bomb? It's a $100 patron gift. And we'll do a special dance and song in tune. But in all seriousness, thank you all so much for your support of this podcast. If you are, quote, just a listener, which is not just a listener, by the way, there's no reason that you have to give anything. We appreciate that. We love that you guys love this show. We do this show because you listen. I can promise you if there were only 50 of you listening, 
this show would not exist. So thank you for all of your support, your messages, your contact. We so thoroughly appreciate you. Yeah, we're going to take a little time each week to thank a few people who've been giving, who become patrons. Love that word. So a large majority of you guys have been patrons with us for two years. That's incredible. So I'm going to read off a few here. Of course, I'm going to start with the king himself, Alexander Leventhal, Bill Hood, Jason Landry, Diego Rivera, Michael Reeves, Andrew Amund, Zach Sparks, Josh Ball, Chris Perales, Craig Anderson, Bobby Boucher, that's your real name, that's awesome, Robert Davies, Christina Frost, Mark Mitchell, Russell Hall, Alex Chavers, just Tim, that's all he needs, he's Tim, Lewis F., and Barry Averett. Thank you guys so much for being on the team, very appreciative. And a very special thanks to uh, friends of the podcast, Brian Levine and Scott Strickland, who's a friend of the podcast because of Brian Levine. So, Brian, thank you for your endless efforts uh, recruiting and promoting the show. We greatly appreciate it. And congrats to you, Brian, for retiring after quite an illustrious career. We know that you're Whoa. trying to find your next step. Congrats to you. Now, Alan, without further ado, let's dive into what makes this podcast what it is. There were massive TV ratings for this game. It was the highest rated regular season game on ESPN in the past four years. Of course, it was the only game going on then. But basically, if you were a college football fan, you probably tuned into this game for some portion of it. And it had all of the zaniness and craziness and, and goodness and badness and whatever you want to say a college football game could have at an extraordinarily high level. This was not just your regular average opening game. What I want to know, Alan... We won the game, yes. But how bad would this have been if we had lost this game? It would have been a bad look, especially you see a Miami team that's pretty flawed, obviously struggling along the offensive line, giving up 10 sacks, fumbling all over the place. We're the better team, the more experienced team. We should win the game. Now, some people came out of this looking like, oh, Miami, you know, and maybe Miami will be good by the end of the year, but they weren't good week zero. And to lose that game on national TV, whether it's for recruiting, your own brand, how the team feels about the season, I think would have been very detrimental on every front. And so that that's what makes a really big win, a really significant win. And at this point, I don't care how sloppy week zero was. I'm really thankful the Gators came out on top. Yeah, I think what explains Dan Mullen's awkward and weird giddiness after the game is this, that realization that he escaped a game we said last week that you have had a lot more to lose in and that would have been extremely bad to lose beyond just losing an opener. It would have been really bad for the reasons you mentioned, right? More experienced team, more experienced quarterback, more experienced coach, basically a home game. There was 95% UF fans there. To lose that game and this juncture of the program build to a brand new program build in Miami would have been catastrophic. And we were oh so close, Alan, to having that happen. I mean, oh, so close to having that happen. Yeah, it was crazy. Uh, this is a game I think that we're going to remember for a long time just for how wild it was. I think it took a year off my life. Uh, for every one of those unrecovered fumbles, I just sunk lower. <laughs> I couldn't handle it. I was like, we could have ended this game 18 different ways. What moment did you lose your mind the most when you were just freaking out about the possibility of us losing? You know, this question is interesting because I went into the game placing a sizable bet on the Gators to cover the seven-point spread. And 
feeling decently comfortable because like we talked about on the podcast, there were way more scenarios than not that the Gators win this game. And a lot of things had to go wrong. And I mean, a lot of things had to go wrong to lose the game. And so many things had to go wrong to not cover the spread. So there comes a point in time when you go up 7-3, you're driving, and you're feeling like we're going to blow them out. This game is going to be an absolute destruction. Easy money. Piece of cake. And then you then you go fumble. And you think, oh, it's no big deal. It's no problem. It's fine. Happens. It's early in the season. And then you go pitch to P. Ryan who can't catch the pitch. Fumble. And you're thinking, okay, he's on the ball. Okay, it's not a problem. Nope, nope we lost the ball. Okay. Okay, what is going on? And then somehow you go into halftime with Miami winning the game. And I, I remember thinking to myself, all I want to do is just win the game. I don't care. 14-13. I don't care what the score is. I just want to beat them by a fraction of a point more than they beat us by. This feels really bad. It feels really bad. And because of that, it put me in this weird spot where I was no longer expecting anything. I was just, I was prey emoji hoping that we just win the football <laughs> game. Because yes. I couldn't imagine a season where we lose this game, Alan, and doing this podcast every week thinking every minute we spend on the podcast for the rest of the season is all for naught. We've already just fallen flat on our face to this Miami team. It's not ready to beat us yet. And then we go to the second half. And then I felt the tension. You could feel the play calling. I felt the team was tight. I felt the coaches were tight. I felt they knew we were in for a fight. And so everything is exhaled and I'm relaxed and I'm comfortable, right? We go through this manic phase we're going to talk about and everything feels good. Four minutes, 30 seconds left. We've sacked them a hundred million times. I can't even count how often we've been in the backfield. Everything is fine. Four minutes and 30 seconds left. We're just going to have a nice little drive here. Worst case scenario, probably kick a field goal or punt. And there's no way they're scoring. And then on first down, you know what happens. Yes. One of the most absurd interceptions you could watch happen, happens. A good four or five minutes after the same person is on national television talking to the camera by himself on the sideline about this is what he does, watch him work or whatever he says. So at that moment in time, my mind, I think, just exited my, my head and went somewhere else. And I was, I was sitting on the couch when my brain was somewhere else. My emotions were somewhere else. And I was in like three pieces, just staring at the screen thinking, if we lose to Miami, like, I don't want to watch football anymore. That involves the Gators. And I, I don't want to do the podcast. Those are the first two thoughts that went to my So I literally <laughs> yes. lost my actual mind. Not in frustration, not in anger. My mind just left me and said, I'm not going to be a part of this anymore. How about you? Well, I was at a pretty big watch party. Uh, and, you know, we were celebrating quite a bit when it looked like Moon recovered that fumble. You know, you probably don't know what I'm talking about because they fumbled 17 times. I think we only recovered one. But it looked like, of course, he landed on it. Now, you see the replay, he didn't. But that you know, it was one of, I think, five or six moments that would have sealed the game. And that killed me. I I'd absorbed a lot of shots before that. Uh, you know, the interception, the penalties, whatever. That one, I was like, I don't know if we can recover another one. But we did. We held on. It was great. And I, I think the, the image that summarizes how we were feeling during the game is the Spurrier face. If you haven't seen this, there's a clip after Felipe throws his last interception. I don't know quite how to describe it. Uh, bewilderment is maybe a, the right word or Spurrier's looking like just, he can't believe what he's seeing. Uh, that's how we all felt. Uh, just a little bit of disgust in that mixed in there too. So if you haven't seen a Google, Google that someone posted it on our Facebook page. You can see it there as well. Uh, but that's how I was feeling. Certainly. 
when that came up. I was talking with another friend of the podcast after the game, uh, one Danny Warfel, and we're texting back and forth. And he's he's telling me how the Spurrier face was was so classic because it immediately sort of brings him back to how Spurrier would have handled that moment and handled the post game. And obviously Dan Mullen did not. Dan Mullen was very praiseworthy, and and and, and Danny is just thinking of what Spurrier would have actually done after the game, and it would not have been flowery. But that face, I, like you said, Alan, that was the most perfect face. I've ever seen. That's why we love Spurrier, though, right? Is Spurrier is one of the rare coaches that his emotion matches how you feel pretty much at all times. He has an uncanny ability to look just how you look, which is great because a lot of times it. coaches put on the face or the shtick, and he doesn't. He's sitting there no, not in at all. all of his Hall of Fame glory with his Gator polo on, just thinking, whoa, that's one of the ugliest plays I have seen. And I mean, it just encapsulates the entire game. It's like this just insane game that played out. At the end of the day, it feels like it's great for college football because we won. And, and you know what? These are kids. These are one thing. You, these are not professionals. They don't right. get preseason games. It's a highly emotional game. Most of these kids played some level of seven on seven or high school ball against each other. Um, the game just gets off into the absurd mania land, and people lose their minds. And we're going to talk again on the film study about how often individuals lost their minds for various reasons. But you know what, Alan? None of these kids lost their minds for wrong reasons. They're all trying to make a play. They're all trying to win. So as much as we're going to talk about what could or could not have been done, neither team out there was attempting to do anything to hurt their own teams. They wound up hurting their own teams with a variety of circumstances. But as Dan Mullen said, the effort and energy these guys put out there on that field is why we love college football. The passion of the fans, the passion of the players, the way the sport produces drama is just unparalleled. American football is unparalleled in how it gives you these moments, uh, even if they're really ugly and not pretty, and they, they kind of make you wonder if we're going to win any more games this season. They give you the moments, and, and that's that's something that I think shouldn't be lost on any of us as Gator fans because we won. If we lost, a different narrative exists here, and Certainly. this is an important thing to remember. Maybe my biggest take on point is this. If you win games like these, they become this fantastic opportunity to get better from, which we'll talk more about. If you lose this game, everything I just said is out the window. It doesn't matter. You don't care. It makes no difference. It's just terrible. Right. And, and you're the same person who, who talks about style versus record. But on these big games, you need to win. Like, you don't care if you beat Georgia by craziness. You wanted to win the game. Now, it'll be a different story in a couple of weeks against Tennessee Martin. We need to look good doing it. That's important. It's not just about the... Win because you're already guaranteed a win once you walk in the door. And when it happens, Alan, is important. The style thing is really important, right? If every game this year looked like the Miami game, we're going to have problems. We're going to have some some very serious conversations on this podcast about what that would mean. But so far, Dan Mullen has a history of his teams improving. This was very much like the Kentucky game that we lost last year. A lot of parallels between these two games. And there's reason to believe it will get better from here. Uh, but you're, you're right about the style piece. One game, first game. Highly charged opponent, highly charged game, survive the game. If it's week 10 and this stuff's happening, you got issues. But it's week zero. Right. And I think the dominant way this game plays out, if you played it 100 times, is I think we do blow them out. If we punch that TD in there, you know, when we fumble on the seven-yard line, we're up 14-3. Maybe we put on another score. All of a sudden, they're passing and we know they're passing. And you saw what happened with that. They go backwards. They get sacked, maybe throw some interceptions, maybe recover one of their 17 fumbles, and then the game really gets away from them. We win by 30. 
I would say that was a much higher probability of that happening than one actually played out. And when it went to chaos, our guys kept their heads enough that we won the game. And they play with they did play with a lot of effort, even if some of that was misguided effort. Okay, so we're going to talk about where things went wrong because a lot of things did go wrong. But first, let's get into the offense and talk about how we were successful. James, why don't you start out here? What did we do well on offense? Well, on film, the game plan was solid. And watching this live, it's tricky to figure out if it was solid. You saw a lot of things that looked questionable, weren't executing very well, weren't hitting a lot of big plays, were the receivers even open. But upon watching the actual film, uh, you know, our, our game plan was pretty pretty straightforward, Dan Mullen-wise. And against Miami, we spread them out to the extreme. Uh, we did a lot of three and four wide receiver formations. These are not my favorite because they're gimmicky. I love three and four and five wide receiver sets. We've talked about it a lot on the podcast, but I like them when they're employed to hit routes on the field, not when they're just spacing mechanisms. Miami was well aware of this. Uh, we talked about Manny Diaz knowing how Dan Mullen likes to play things. And so the primary game plan was let's spread them out. Let's put three receivers on one side and let's see how they're going to handle that. Well, Miami all game long was very consistent. They countered that kind of formation by simply putting just enough guys to guard each man on the edge and keeping an extra defender in the box. So at all times against the run, they were at least equal to our players. If you're counting Felipe Franks as a runner, he's not really a true runner in the zone read offense, which we've talked about. So for all practical purposes, they were plus one against our run game almost all day long. So what this tells me is Dan Mullen stuck with his base game plan, which he will. That's his MO. Manny Diaz knew exactly what his base game plan was. Yet with that being said, there are many plays where Dan had him totally exposed and we did not execute on those plays, Alan. So it kind of looks like Maybe Manny Diaz really won this battle. That's not actually what happened. The actual plays we called at the times we called them could have been very successful. And we failed to execute on a large majority of them that were right there, catching Miami perfectly in several looks that did not get converted. Yeah, two that we looked at, um, both of them were failures on the actual field. But at the time, that could have been hugely successful. Those little speed option plays um, where you – put a lot of receivers to the wide side of the field and you run to the short side. We ran this play very effectively in the second half of the year. This time when we ran it, the first time we fall started and the second time Malik Davis fumbles the pitch. Uh, I think both of those times would have been for very large gains, at least 10 yards and maybe 20 to 30 because we had them blocked really well. We had them schemed. It was the right time to call it against Miami's formation and we just didn't execute. And I think that's where you can really look at this is week zero. This type of stuff shows up. Now, we talked a lot last night. You know, if you're playing Towson week one and you make these mistakes, nobody sees them. Or maybe you notice them, but it doesn't matter because you're so much better. It's irrelevant. Now, you probably would notice a fumbled snap. But, you know, little miscues, little miss blocks, Small execution points won't show up as much as they do against a defense like Miami, who knows what you're doing and is talented enough to actually oppose you. But there's a lot of moments like that. I know um, when we went back and watched what looked like a really awkward rollout in the red zone, actually something else. Why don't you talk about that play? Yeah, so if you if you remember Felipe Franks rolling out of the pocket, not at halftime, where he inexplicably rolled out of the pocket and then and then took a took a sack, although that may have been design play. The routes didn't make sense. It was two comeback hitches. There was a well designed play in the red zone where Franks rolls to the right, 
You've seen this play many, many times before. Pitts is also on the right, and he's going to sneak out and then run far left. So Franks rolls right, throws all the way left for what you would consider to be a backside touchdown pass to the tight end. Pitts is, in fact, wide open. We hit this play at least two or three times last year. Right play call, right time, right look, wide open. From the film, it's hard to tell why Franks does not throw it. It's it's there. Uh, there's not a guy in his face. He has a clean window. Instead, he kind of keeps on drifting and then eventually throws the ball out of bounds to the right side by the end zone. But that was a touchdown play, and that was actually properly executed across the board, minus Franks throwing. Uh, there were other plays where it didn't necessarily fall on Franks for the fault of it. But that's an example of a play when you watch live, you can't see that route happening. Yeah, it just, just looks, looks like, like we just screwed everything Franks up. Franks rolled right and threw the ball out of bounds to two guys that are standing next to each other. Not actually what happened. So that that's a kind of a caution. And I know a lot of you listen to this podcast to get that kind of information. I thought what I found most interesting, Alan, and we're going to talk about this in a second, but I want to, I want to lead off with it, is we talked about Miami potentially coming out and playing a quarters coverage or a cover four and keeping everything in front of them, which would be the safer way to play it. It's how a lot of teams like to play Urban Meyer's run game. They did exactly the opposite. Manny yes. Diaz showed that he's not kidding around when he talks about wanting to play aggressive football. I love the game plan they had for us. They came out and they largely played cover one or press man. They would occasionally bail into a cover three. So again, as a refresher, cover one means you have just one safety that's free to run the field. He was typically helping on Van Jefferson's side. Your other defenders are lining up and guarding the man in front of them. They played a little bit of zone here and there. But they basically said, we don't think Felipe Franks can pass the football, and we don't think you're willing to attempt to pass the football. And so we are not going to help our defenders in pass coverage. We're only going to help in run coverage. And they remained that way the entire game, Alan. They did not at all play conservative. They showed no respect for our passing offense. Ultimately, this did bite them at a huge moment in the game when we finally made them pay with that pass to Hammond. But that was probably... The question we asked the most, how is Manny Diaz going to attack a, a familiar opponent he knows? And he showed you with direct aggression, not respecting our passing game. And, and it worked. It worked to a large extent, even though we did shoot ourselves in the foot a lot. Um, he did not give us easy throws, easy completions. He was going to take away anything that was going to be comfortable or simple. And he was going to make us beat him over the top. Agreed. And they have the linebackers to make a lot of that possible. Those guys were adept at stuffing the run and being in the right place at the right time. And again, I think we, we left a lot of plays out on the field, a lot of points out on the field, but uh, Miami did do a good job with that. Let me ask you this question. Uh, just as a more game plan kind of conversation, I mentioned two running plays that were theoretically would have been successful, but overall in our kind of run pass balance, were we too committed to the run, you know, especially going up against this type of defense? In my opinion, yes. And, and again, if you're new to the podcast, how I evaluate this question is what the defense is giving you. And you'll hear coaches say, we have to take what the defense gives us. And what that really means to me is what the numbers tell you you should do. And that is how Dan Mullen, in fact, runs his offense. At times last year, we talked about how he's consistently doing it all game long. He just goes where the numbers are. In this game, I think it speaks to a little bit of the tightness that existed, especially in the second half, that that was no longer the case. Miami was daring us to pass the football into the heavier side of the field. And by heavier side of the field, I mean field where there are more players. So if we have three or four receivers on a certain side of the field, they were oftentimes lining up in a man-to-man set, but they were off the ball. They were giving you space. They're basically saying, we don't think you're going to actually throw the ball here. We think this is a decoy. But the reality is, Alan, in our offense with Franks is not going to run the ball 15 times a game. If a team is going to keep their safety 
as Miami often did within eight to nine yards of the line of scrimmage in the box, along with eight to nine defenders, you have got to start passing the football to the perimeter. You have got to do it. They are making you do it. And as you said, we did run it too often because we chose not to do that. We chose not to take the more optimal, higher expected value play. And I think that says a lot about the fact that Dan Mullen can say in the postgame presser, he really trusts Franks. But the reality is we are not taking throws that you would take if you had a quarterback that you trusted more. We were trying to sort of maybe just just go into a bad front but win because we felt like we could. It was a safer option. Give the ball to Pirine. Safe throws to the running back. Uh, we were more conservative than what their defense would have dictated we should have been doing. Yeah, it was interesting. I was wondering if some of that was he was uncertain about how the offensive line would hold up. Now we're going to get to them in a couple minutes. They're much discussed on this podcast. What if that played into his conservative game plan? Uh, you're less likely to have bad things happen running the ball, although they did to us, than dropping back and pass where you get your quarterback blindsided, strip sack, pick six the other way. So I'd be interested to see what that run pass mix is like going forward if we're presented with those same options, you know, week three, week four, week five. And time of possession now had a lot to do with it. This That's was, true. This was not a recipe for a Gator win. You know, Miami had 36 minutes of possession uh, to our 24 and that's in the past, that's a guaranteed loss for us. With Felipe Franks at quarterback, we're not a team that's going to light up the scoreboard quickly. We won this game despite everything going wrong. And I think it's possible Dan wanted to try to even that out. Uh, and we'll talk on the defensive side about kind of how heroic they were to play as many minutes as they did in an opener and last. And that's obviously a credit to Nick Savage. But purely as a theoretical exercise, we definitely ran the ball too often into fronts that were not advantageous for us to run into. Anything else you want to mention on the play calling? I mean, we usually like to praise Dan Mullen on his play selection, especially around the red zone. Anything else, good or bad, that you want to mention? The majority of the play calls were good. And I think a question we ran into is, were the receivers getting open? And the answer is yes, and they were getting open on time. From the film we watched, Alan, I would say 85 90% of the plays had a receiver that was, in fact, open. Now, one thing we can't know is what the read progression is. But at this point in time, you would have hoped that Franks has gotten to the point to where he can make at least a half field, if not a full field read to find those guys. Uh, so the play calls were good. The route combinations were mainly good. Uh, I think maybe the most important thing to recognize is all game long, we had gotten that cover one look from Miami. In the second half, we switched to a two receivers or a twins on one side and a single receiver on the weak side where they had intentionally been shading their safety over to help on Van Jefferson's side. So on the Hammond throw, you get a look you've seen all game long. The game is now on the line. The team is as tight as it's going to be, right? We're losing late in the game. We see the same exact look. Miami is daring us. They're begging us to throw the ball deep. Please do it. You won't do it. And we do it. We take the obvious look off to, to Van Jefferson's side. The safety is already shading there anyway. Makes no attempt to stay in the middle of the field. And he drops a dime into, into Hammond for a huge play. So that's the play call of the game to me. And it shows me again that Mullen, when, when the stuff hit the fan, he could have easily tried to squeeze out a touchdown there. Runs, short passes. But he didn't. He went first down. I'm taking what they're giving me. We talked at length in the offseason. I want to see more of that from Dan Mullen. I want to see more of those shots. Take 10 of those shots or 11 of those shots a game if teams are going to play what Miami did. Because all you got to do is hit two or three of them and you change the whole game. So I thought that's something I want to praise. Um, and then and then the fourth down play calls. Set the tone, Alan. We got 10 points out of all those fourth down play calls, whether it was the punt or the other ones. We manufactured 10 points from extending drives. And so, again, Dan Mullen has a history of play calling us into points. And when he does that, we win. And he did it again. In this game, he had to find ways to score points, and he did that. Yeah, I liked those fourth down play calls for the most part. 
we're going to get into each of those in our little coaching corner, but agreed that there was some sharp play calling. Again, we can talk about philosophically, but each play on its own for the most part made sense. There was rarely anything that we looked at was like, why did we do that? That was really strange. might've been like, I wouldn't have chosen that, but I see what's happening here. So, you know, again, young season, we'll have a lot more to cover as this team gets more snaps and more plays in a game. There was only, I think, 53 to 55 plays on offense for us. That's very low. Like, we had some of those games last year, and it were weird games where we were scoring quickly, or we had turnovers. This was the other way, and we still somehow won the game. It's crazy when you look at the numbers, the turnover percentage, everything else that we actually won. So, <laughs> kind of nuts to see me sitting here talking about a Gator win. So we struggled, Alan, and where did we struggle? We could spend hours on this, but we've kind of been alluding at it as we've gone through. But primarily we struggled with our execution, and then Frank's, Frank struggled. I think what's surprising here is I'm not going to say the offensive line struggled. I'm not going to say that. And, and why? It's really important, I think, to grade players and units compared to where their expectation level is or what their talent level is or what their experience level is. And there's no doubt, Alan, if you would have told me before the game that we'd have gotten this kind of performance from our offensive line, I would have said we win easily. We had no idea what we were going to get. And by and large, they played a very consistent, solid game. Hardly any penalties. They didn't really blow assignments very often. The things we've seen in the past where guys are just running free was not really happening. On plenty of throws, although Franks had somebody get into his face, he often walked himself right into them. He had a pocket where if he could have slid left or right or up, he wouldn't have had anything. So by and large, that was not a struggle point. Like we said, I think Franks had a, a microcosm game of his whole career. He had highs and lows and mental mistakes and foolish leadership positions. We turned the ball over four times, um, you know, careless turnovers, things that are not typical of a Dan Mullen regime that ultimately almost cost us the game. So I think this game is a, is a coach's dream in a way, Alan, that we inflicted a lot of wounds upon ourselves on offense. And those are actually things that are corrected, but we did not get manhandled on the line. Our receivers were not getting blanketed all day long. We gifted them turnovers. They barely earned any of them. Uh, and I think that is something that is really comforting when you watch the film to know, yes, this can actually get a lot better. Uh, as for Franks, Alan, let's have the conversation here. What did you think of Franks? It's been a much discussed topic. There's a YouTube video that's making the rounds about a guy breaking down Franks, talking about the progression. People seem to be all over the place. Franks is good. Franks is bad. We can win. We can't win with him. Where do you sit on the Franks discussion? This is interesting. Uh, you know, you look at his stat line, 17, 27, 254 yards, two TDs, two picks. We're going to get to the interceptions here in a minute, but watching him back on film, the, I think the more disappointing thing is that there wasn't as much improvement as I was hoping for. Now, again, he does, he's not out there in isolation, I don't know. The reads that he's making don't always tell me that he is seeing the field as clearly or, or maybe they're not ready to let him do that. Now, often we talked about this, you know, the heavier side of the field, there's four receivers over here and we're going to throw to the other side or there's an action to the short side of the field. I and mean, it's not in the short side, but the less there's fewer players over there. The more complicated thing is to deal with the more players over there. And sometimes there was a lot of really interesting stuff going on there that Miami knew that we were ignoring. Now, again, is that just, they don't think Felipe is going to deal with it or the coaches aren't trusting him. I don't really know that yet, but either way, it's not translating onto the field. And I'm going to say this about Felipe. I'll go ahead and get this out there. I think this is the 
something I talk about a lot with like personal maturity is like the good, bad split. If you're in the camp of someone is good, you tend to ignore the bad things. And if you're like, no, that person's garbage, you, ah, whatever. I won't talk about it. I'll minimize the good things that they're doing. Well, you saw both in this game. That pass to Hammond was beautiful. Came out on time, right in the right spot. Hammond made a nice catch. And there's some throws that he makes, again, every week that you're like, man, this is really nice. His touchdown run. I love that he's a can be a battering ram. And then that second interception at that point in the game was horrific. Maybe one of the worst ones he's ever had. Since his top five worst interceptions. And that goes, oh, that makes you go, he's just garbage. He's never going to make it. I don't think he's either. Um, I wasn't encouraged as much as I want to be by or I want him to be his baseline this year. But I, I don't think it was all bad, and it definitely wasn't all good. So somewhere in the middle, he is who he is, I think, at this point, is what we're we're trying to say. We can win with him. Obviously did last year, but maybe he didn't take that next step. At least he hasn't shown it yet that he's taken that next step that we thought he might have taken in the offseason. I think that's the meta take home. We asked ourselves last week, what's the ceiling for this team and what does it depend on? And we talked about it depends on Franks' ability to, to get two more wins out of the team by being a quarterback that takes a step forward. Based upon this game, it's hard to say that he took any kind of step forward. If he took anything forward, it was like a tiny baby step. But that, I think, is being orange and blue optimistic with your with your glasses on. I think it's very hard, uh, with all respect to the guy who did the YouTube video, I think it's very hard to find a lot of evidence that he has taken a large step forward as a quarterback. And it's not just the poor pocket presence. He has a very, very low level of awareness of how to move in the pocket. For a guy who's got a lot of pocket experience as a college quarterback now, it's not just that he still sticks onto his first reads and he's highly successful when his first reads are open. He's very not successful when those are not open. It's his overall presence as a leader. It, it's the way that he is is handling the game as a quarterback on the sideline. It's the antics that he goes through. It's punting the ball at the end of the game. He is disconnected from the reality that is his reputation. He's disconnected from the game as a quarterback. He's sort of in Felipe Frank's land. And Dan Mullen seems to be encouraging this behavior, which is also interesting. Dan Mullen must think it's best for Felipe Franks to live in Felipe Frank's land. But you said something, Alan, that's most true. Felipe Franks is Felipe Franks. We were all hoping that maybe he'd be something slightly different this year. We'd see Felipe Franks 2.0 and he'd be something maybe a little different or whatever. I don't think that's the case. I think it's safe now as a Gator fan, and I'm going to go make this call now, that he is who he is. And we need to just know this is who he is right now. He's probably slightly ahead of Emory Jones in the depth chart. He's the best guy we have. If you're expecting some sort of transition to a miracle this season, I don't see that happening. And yes, I'm getting out early. He could he could grow. He could get better. I'm not saying he couldn't. But the other things that you want to see in your quarterback that really translate to wins in the field, he just doesn't seem to have those things. It's hard to believe he's going to get them. Uh, with that being said, he 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 made some nice throws when they mattered. He he did this, Alan. He throws an interception on a ball he sails to a wide open Freddie Swain, which is a which is a good read, good read, good play. But the reason he sailed it is he slid himself out of the pocket into trouble. Couldn't follow through. Lifted it too high. That's a pick. He then proceeds to connect on his very next pass to Hammond on a bomb down the 10-yard line. Then completes three more passes and runs it in for a touchdown to take the lead. He then gets the ball back and throws a pick. That is the story of Felipe Franks. All while he's on the sideline 
gesturing to cameras and doing things you don't want your quarterback doing, high-fiving the fans. and get, It's just not... He's not the general that you want or need, Alan. And yes, it's college, but you still need a general. As much as Baker Mayfield is a big personality and kind of absurd, he is a general to his team on the field. He is dialed in to what is happening. We can't get Franks there yet. He's not there yet. So we take the good with the bad. And on this podcast, and I want to say this, we have no personal opinions or effect towards any of the players. Our job is to analyze what they're doing on film and give you an objective look on what they're doing on the film. And so if we're grading out Franks in this game, it was horrifically bad, extremely good on some throws. But overall, the quarterback's job is to manage the game, to make consistent throws, to get you into good looks. Those things he still struggles to do. Now, Alan, what he did do that was definitively much better than last year is he got us in and out of plays much faster. Yes. Much faster. For a first game with some new guys and new offensive linemen, he was able to basically get us in the play and run the play consistently all game long. Right. You didn't see any delay of game penalties. No delay of game No penalties. false starts. We had one false start, I think, with right. all those offensive linemen, right? A neutral site situation. That's fantastic. So that is actually tangible, discernible improvement. But I think you are reaching for straws if you want to say that you've seen better pocket presence, better reading ability. Uh, I don't think so. I think he's still very much the same guy that he was. He locks in. He locks on. Uh, We're never going to know how much responsibility they're giving him to read the field, but I can tell you based upon the routes we're running, you wouldn't run some of these routes, Alan, if they weren't real reads. We're not seeing them. And that makes a huge difference in what this receiving core looks like. So all in all, Frank's performance, I think, was disappointing because we all hoped he was going to take a step forward. Right. This is funny. You talk about the Felipe Frank's land. That's an interesting way to put it. Because it's unusual to bounce back and forth that much. Usually guys will tank after a bad play, he doesn't seem all that bothered by it in some sense. I mean, to throw that interception and then have the guts to come right back and hit Hammond for the long pass. I love that. I mean, his response to that is great. Also don't then love his response to throw the pick a couple plays later. I don't know. We're going to have to take the good with the bad. Again, this is, I'm going to couch everything I say here in week zero. You came out pretty heavy on this. He didn't show me any improvement this week. That leads me to believe he won't progress the way that we want. He could. Now, if we get to like the meat of our schedule, Auburn, LSU, and he's balling out, that's great. And I, I still say that's a possibility, but it seems less likely from where we're at right now. Okay, uh, let me bring back a quote for you from last week. You said, if Frank's throws for 200-plus yards, it's a really good sign, and that means we're probably going to have a good season. How do you feel about that now? Does that still ring true to you? Well, it, it it does ring true to me in the intent that I said it, which would be command of the game, completing passes, a variety of passes, you know, short, middle, deep. It's a very fictitious 200-plus yards. Take away the Tony one-yard pass that That's turned true. into 60 yards. Now you're below 200. And the Hammond pass is all him. I'm not taking that away at all. That's what a quarterback should do. That's a great pass. But he's beneath – you take away the Tony – 10 tackle misses play, then he's right where he normally is, right? He's 180 yards. Just right around 200. He's, yeah, yeah he's, he's 17 for whatever he is for 180 yards with one touchdown. So he's kind of more the same. Uh, so, no, I think what I meant by that was if he's able to go against the Miami defense and generate actual passing yards, yards that go down the field or command different zones in the field and really have a real – a real 200-yard game, that would have been different. I think the answer to the question, Alan, is we didn't have 
the game that we all wanted from him. I think if you're listening to this show and you love Franks right now and you're being really honest with yourself, did you get what you expected? You heard all the offseason reports. You heard all the things. Even taking into account it's week zero. No one is expecting him to be in midseason form. You were expecting him to be in week zero form. Did you get what you thought you'd get from him? Be honest with yourself. Because the answer to that question cannot be yes. And if it's not yes, then the question you ask yourself is, where are we going? But what's the beauty of this that remains, Alan, is we said that as long as Franks was even remotely who he was last year, we're probably still going to win 9 or 10 games. We probably still are. So we can still hold out hope that he becomes much better, and this is truly an anomaly game. But I think if you watch football long enough and you know it, if I had a quarterback, Alan, these things don't just magically change overnight. All right. They needed to show in this game. They needed to show in this particular situation, and they, and they didn't. So for me, fine. I'll be the, the James on the podcast that's always going to be overly critical or negative, whatever people want to say. I think I'm just looking at it trying to be a realist, and I'll be the first person to say at the end of the year if, if Franks becomes this truly great quarterback that I was completely wrong and I based it on one game. But I'm not basing it on one game. I'm basing right. it on every game he's ever played. And this is another data point that leads me to believe his mean is at a certain level. Right, and this is week zero, but it's against a Miami team that is formidable on defense, especially that you're getting much more of a look than if we're playing Towson week one instead of week six or whatever we're playing them. So a good, hard look at Felipe. I don't think I'm tossing out on hope, but I think I'm re-leveling my expectations there. Let's talk about the O-line a little bit. Now, we've talked about this so much. I said our season would rise and fall along the offensive line play. You mentioned this. If you had known beforehand we're going to get this level of play, you would take it every time. Again, they were not perfect. Went back and watched some stuff. I mean, there's a few plays, of course, where someone's getting beaten around and that's going to happen. Where we're getting to the second level, two guys are chipping one linebacker, but they don't actually chip them, and someone comes through. But they performed well enough. If this is their lowest level, I think that's fine. We can win with this unit. And that's what you were hoping for. Because the possibility was they were going to show up and be a disaster. Like you saw off Miami's offensive line B. We give up 10 sacks and completely ruined everything we were trying to do. We have to do crazy things in scheme and do odd stuff to try to get any kind of real yardage consistently. So I was encouraged by this group. I think they're going to continue to get better. This was a tough test for them right off the bat. I think they acquitted themselves nicely. Again, I don't, I'm not expecting this to become a strength of the team. But overall, pretty well. And I would say pass blocking, pretty decent. Run blocking, more room for improvement. And that goes for them and the tight ends. I think uh, there's a reason Kroll and Pitts are mostly thought of as pass catchers. They have some improvement to do in this area as well. That would really help this unit. But I left the game pretty encouraged, especially as we watched it on a more micro level play to play. Uh, very encouraged. We we talked about the O line. The O line proved to me in this game that they can they can be the foundation to win ten games. They can be adequate. They can they can, you can win ten games with this offensive line, given who we're playing and the issues other teams have. And that's what we that's what you want to see. Again, can they be great? No, they're probably not going to be great. But that's not the question anybody was asking. I felt like they answered the call. I felt like Hevesy puts another feather in his cap. Indeed, for having a very nice performance against a very aggressive defense. Granted, Miami was missing some players in the secondary. It didn't allow them to be quite as creative as they maybe would have otherwise been. They largely played with one true safety most of the game. Regardless, I thought that the offensive line did a nice job. The tight ends, to me, big, big margin for improvement. 
a lot of missed blocks from the tight ends. If you're looking at most of those edge run plays or off tackle runs or screen plays or flare outs, the tight ends are whiffing more than half the time on their on their blocks. And so that's something for them to clean up and improve. A lot of that has to do with identifying who you're blocking. Half the time, Kroll's just not blocking the right guy. And, and that, that's got to be true. something you could cleaned up. Uh, but I thought, Alan, our running back pass protection with P. Ryan was, was perfect. He might have graded out perfect on RB Pass Pro. And we mentioned before this week that we expect that to be great this year. And it was. And that's going to be immensely helpful. Because that will allow us to go into full wide receiver sets with one running back, allowing him to be the extra blocker. I think that's going to be a really good set for us going forward in the future. I look forward to watching how we employ that. But definitely, if you're worried about the offensive line, they had to have built your confidence. And watching on film only built it even further. Are they perfect? No. But did they answer the call? Yes. Can they do this against other SEC teams? Absolutely. So, so far, so good. That was a good debut for the O-line. Agreed. And, yeah, I, I'm hopeful that they will get better. You saw last year's offensive line get appreciably better over the course of the year. And that wasn't a star-studded unit just like this one. So, not that they're going to become like an Alabama-Oklahoma dominant line. But I think they're starting off. If this, again, if this is their low point, and again, barring injuries, I'm expecting to get at least a little bit better. I think that bodes well for this team overall. You ready to talk about the defense? I'm ready. This is going to be quite the conversation. So a lot of highs and a lot of lows. Ten sacks, a few turnovers, a lot of busted plays and penalties. James, game plan. What were we trying to do? What what did we present to Miami on offense? So there were some big differences, Alan, between this year and last year on defense. So we talked a lot last year. We really couldn't afford to play anything but nickel. And again, in nickel, you have two linebackers, and then you have a corner playing the nickel, which was Chauncey last year, this year, Trey Dean. And then you either have, typically last year, we actually had four down linemen. So even though we're a 3-4 defense where you have three down linemen and four linebackers, we play a whole lot of really four three nickel or a 4-2-5 is what you would call it. We had a lot of multiple looks in the first half. We ran a lot more 4-3. We ran, of course, 5-2 against the run. We ran a lot of 4-3, and we mixed it up quite a bit. So there was there was a lot of newness going on over there. There was a lot of interchangeability between who was on the field personnel-wise, and we had a lot of fun charting each play who was on and off and where they were. So you saw a lot of that, and I think that's going to continue as the year goes on. Our game plan, I think, was a little wrong in the beginning. Uh, which surprised me a bit, but then as I as I refresh my memory on how Grantham works, we often give up first drive field goals. That's almost like our mo. We play conservative, play very safe, and then we start to clamp. Yeah, down. I want to see what they're doing. They they run their best stuff, their trickiest stuff, and we adjust and start to clamp down. Yeah, and so we get. I thought it was obvious that Miami would attempt to throw sort of zero yard passes uh, to get him into the game, but we played it very safe. You know, give up the field goal. And I think Grantham thinks in his mind they're only going to score 10 or 13 a game. I don't care when they score them. I'm not going to let them get a lot of momentum by getting like a big play touchdown. So we tend to do that. And, and what really was interesting, Alan, in the game plan was it changed quite a bit in the second half. In the second half, we went back to the old familiar. We ran a ton of, again, 3 4 nickel or 4 3 nickel, but we ran a ton of nickel that was just like last year's nickel. Very similar situation. So we almost abandoned. A lot of the more creative looks that were kind of getting us into some trouble here and there. And we went straight to what really was our bread and butter last year. And we shut them down primarily in the second half using that, which makes sense. I think you're I think you're seeing what Grantham wants to do in the first half, what we kind of still have to do in the second half, and what works for us very, very well. Uh, so a classic Grantham game. Start slow, adjust, bring the pressure. 
um, which was fantastic. Double-digit sacks, obviously a lot of good stuff to go on there. But the primary difference really, Alan, was we were we were a lot of different looks going on. Safety's moving here and there, lots of different robbers happening. Way more, I hate to use this word because exotic's the wrong word to describe anything in football, but way more creative and, and hard to read than in previous years. So as we looked as well, a lot of their big plays, especially on that first drive, and often when they busted something, um, really it was some somebody was in the wrong spot in the secondary. And I'm going to call out uh, Trey Dean really here, and not to like totally dismiss him as our star position, but he looked lost out there at times. Um, I think he's going to get there. He's a really talented guy, but he's transitioning to a different position. And it's a different kind of responsibility. Now, he looked really good in spots, blitzing, uh, being physical against the run. He's going to be decent there, I think. But there was on one of the plays where they just throw a short dump off pass, and he's 15 yards off the ball, not sure where he's supposed to be at. So I think that's the kind of stuff you can see get cleaned up. And that was a lot of their big plays was us being out of position when I don't think we're going to be out of position by week four or five. And then let's talk about where we were successful. The pass rush was awesome. Now, if you didn't know who John Greenard was before this game, you do now because he was in the backfield every play. You know, I I don't know that him being successful against Miami's freshman left tackle means he's going to be like all world, but definitely showed that he's a dude. And he went hard all game. He was in there a ton of snaps. And so the great thing that this staff was able to do in the second half with um, our pass rush and our personnel was, you know, sliding Zuniga inside and getting both Greenard and Moon on the field. Basically, your best three pass rushers on the field at the same time, playing two guys who normally play the buck because of Moon's versatility in that 3-4-4-3, three, four, four, three, getting a lot of pass rushers on the field and bringing pressure when they needed to. They You could have been a little more conservative against a team like me. I mean, just like they don't think they're going to beat us, but we didn't. Of course, Grantham is going to bring the house, you know, impressed with our linebackers too. And we'll get to some of these guys in the bright spots, but Ventral Miller, James Houston, for the most part, looked really good. Miller with a couple sacks. When they brought him, his speed stood out on tape. He looked like he was shot out of cannon. So that is replacing a little bit of that Voshan jo- Joseph magic coming after the quarterback that we didn't know if we were going to get. Now, Amari Bernie's a different player, and he wasn't out there as much because Miami went pretty heavy. So personnel-wise, I thought was interesting what we did, getting all those pass rushers on the field, and we still, for the most part, held up against the run. So that would be the question mark if you have all those guys who are primarily pass rushers. Can they hold up at the point of attack? And they did. So that was, that was a, I think, an encouraging thing that they were able to do that, again, against a bad Miami offensive line. But if those guys can hold up, in those formations, they're going to terrorize most offensive lines. Yeah, still 10 sacks, which is Miami record. They Crazy. They allowed 10 sacks. Could have easily been 15 or 16 sacks. You had a plethora of fumbles generated from the unit, although they didn't get any of them back. <laughs> uh, they were on the field for 76 plays and 36 minutes, and they looked just as fresh at the end as they were on play one. Rotating a ton of guys really helps. Incredible testament, again, to Savage out there. Uh, we were we held them to two for 13 on third down, and one of those third down conversions when we dropped eight, which was the only time in the game we did it. And I want to give some credit here to, to uh, Jaron Williams. I thought he was very solid. I mean, you never want to put too much stock into a guy's debut. I think his challenge is going to be playing behind a terrible offensive line. That That has a good history in football of messing up even the best quarterbacks. It really ruins your trust for playing the sport. You can look at 
you know, DeAndre Francois at Florida State. David Carr, famously with the Texans. David Carr, the most famous. A lot of people think he probably would have been a Hall of Famer had he not been on the worst offensive line for years, maybe any NFL quarterbacks ever had. This is going to hurt him, but he was in command. He was calm. If you gave him time, he scanned the whole field. I was very impressed. It looks like they made the right decision with him. Again, too many factors to say what he will become, but... If you're a Miami fan and you saw him play, you had to be encouraged. I thought he did a nice job there. And uh, really, our our best way of stopping him was to just overwhelm him with pressure. And that offensive line just could not handle what we were doing. Now, where do we struggle? This is the most obvious answer any defensive breakdown film could have. Tackling was atrocious. Yes. I mean, unbelievably bad. Maybe the worst any Gator team has ever put on the field. Kentucky was bad last year. This seemingly easily outdid that. And then yet again, Alan, the old standby, our safety play. Uh, we had some good safety play, which we'll talk about. But by and large, our, our safeties uh, missed a lot of tackles. And then our corners, Henderson, I guess, thinks he's Deion Sanders now. He's the number one corner in college football, so he no longer has to tackle. I'm not really sure what he's doing, but on film, he's not trying to tackle anyone anymore. Marco Wilson struggled to tackle. I'm going to give him a pass. He's rusty. It's been a year. He was a good tackler before. I think he'll be just fine. Henderson, on the other hand, needs to do some soul searching because I'm not sure if he's going to play the whole season actually being Deion Sanders or not, Allen, but it was gross what he's putting on film tackle-wise. And, and he made a couple of those tackles. Those big plays would have been three or four or five. Right, and games. everyone's going to remember about Marco, the, maybe if, especially if we had lost this game, it would have been infa- infamous fourth and 34, was it? That they you never, ever touch the guy. I think what happened to Marco is they freaked out a little bit. They ran past the original line of scrimmage marker. And I think he just saw the guy and was like, oh, crap. And tackled him what would have been well short of even the first down. You know, he didn't have a Sterling game back, but he did good. I, I mean, I think you didn't see him getting picked on which is if he's not all the way back, they would have located him, certainly, because you're not going to throw at Henderson. So I don't want to kill him. I mean, obviously, that's the play that stands out in the secondary screwing up. But there are a lot of miscues back there that hopefully that they can, if they get the right personnel on the field. Now, I know you were really encouraged by the play of Sean Davis. Yeah, I thought Sean Davis was great. And as a comment on Marco Wilson, I thought he was uh, coverage-wise more or less an eraser for almost the entire game. They threw more at Henderson than they did at Wilson, which is what happened their freshman year. And we talked about that before the podcast. It's still very possible that Wilson's the better corner. We're going to find out. Safety-wise, we talked about this last year. Maybe I'm becoming biased, Alan. I don't I don't like to think I am. I just watched the film. But it's clear to me that Sean Davis, especially if we're talking about Davis, Steiner, and Taylor, we're going to assume Brad Stewart's probably our best true safety. Sean Davis is undersized, so he tends to play a lot in the passing game, although I think he's acquitted himself just fine tackling. I thought he had a fantastic game. You know, a fun stat that Tyler talked about in the thread, which turned to be true uh, on on film st- study, was that Sean Davis is not on the field during any of Miami's touchdowns. More importantly, though, if you watched him play, he played a near-perfect game at the safety spot. He stayed on top of all the routes they wanted to go to. He came downhill and tackled when he needed to. He has a command out there and a comfort level that I'm not seeing our other safeties have. He's constantly communicating with the nickel or the corner. He seems to know where he needs to line up. Uh, he seems very, very comfortable. It's certainly my hope, Alan, that we begin to see a lot more of Davis and Stewart on the field at the same time over the combination of Taylor, which seems to be the more favored safety, and then Steiner, who I thought both had games they're going to want to forget forever. Regrettable tackling, out of position at certain times, missing coverage assignments. 
they they would have been better off not being on the field. To me, if you want to take away on this podcast and you're listening, the film suggests very strongly that Sean Davis and Brad Stewart should be our safeties and that Steiner and Donovan should only spell them based upon last year and this year. Right. Uh, it looks like that needs to be the case. That's something to watch as we go forward. And maybe they'll start to separate. Cause it seemed like all four of those guys were kind of pretty equal in the coach's mind. They're going to play all of them. You know, they'll all play some because you're – they they believe in rotating guys, but they finished the game with Sean Davis out there. He was out there on the critical downs uh, at the end of the game, so m- maybe that means he's going to get more run at the critical moments. Now Brad Stewart, he, you know, he had his ups and downs last year too. But if Steiner and Taylor are supposed to be the more physical of the safeties, and they're not going to tackle well, and they're not going to pursue at the correct angles, then what's the point of having them out there? I mean, Steiner's a huge guy, and it seems like the coaches really like him for a lot of different things. He's still got a lot to improve upon. Not saying he can't get there, but he hasn't really put it on film yet. No, he has not, and those guys don't play fast, which is what you'd want at the safety spot. So we generated a lot of turnovers, Alan, in theory. You know, turnovers meaning the ball's on the ground, we couldn't get to it. So we struggled to pick those up. I'm going to call that unlucky. Yes. In football, that happens sometimes. I, I, you know, I don't think we were doing anything like stupid to not pick the ball. If we weren't trying to scoop and score, we just weren't quite able to get them. Uh, well, so, there's something with Bill, uh, Bill Connolly now with ESPN. He talks about fumble luck, and that tends to even out. If you're recovering a lot of fumbles, that means you're probably going to recover less of them. And so that's good news for us to win a game where we had terrible fumble luck because that means we're probably going to hopefully that would even out at some point if we have the entire season like that. Uh, well, it'll crush us. And that would also be a statistical anomaly. So yeah, hopefully one season is a long enough sample size to generate a regression to the mean or an ascension to the mean, but either way, uh, fourth and 34, like you mentioned, that was obviously really poor. The pass interference calls were poor. We had some issues with some penalties, but again, first game for the defense, I think we played about as poorly as we could on the tackling side scheme wise. And I love saying this cause we spent years. Where this was not true scheme wise. More or less fantastic. Maybe five plays we looked at, Alan, we thought, eh, wasn't the greatest defensive call. Other than that, it was consistently great, I thought. We were well prepared for what they wanted to do. We had guys in the right spots. I think the players themselves have to gain confidence of what they're supposed to be. But the scheme was solid. So scheme A+, plus yet again. And then really what got us, and I guarantee you they're going to spend a lot of time practicing, is the Wildcat. And yes. I don't know why Miami did not run this more. They ran Crazy. it twice. And they obliterated us. I mean, both times. One went for a touchdown. The other one for like 20 yards. And you know that every team practices stopping the Wildcat. We were ready for it. It didn't surprise us. We were lined up in the proper areas. And we just did not handle it well at all. The one recall that we were really ready for was Tate Martell, their backup quarterback, the transfer from Ohio State, being in the game and being involved in that Wildcat. They gave it to him once, and we killed him on it. Seemed like we were way more concerned about whatever he was going to do than the guy running the ball. And they torched us. Linebackers inside the wrong position. Safety's not filling the right gaps. You know, getting eaten up on blocks, which is going to happen. Uh, but yeah, we'll we're going to see that coming at us because everyone who everyone in America watched that game, so everybody saw those plays. If we don't learn how to deal with that, it's going to be trouble. And now I'm thinking about our you know schedule ahead. It's not like we play against a ton of like creative wild offenses but everybody has those plays in their book everybody's got a guy in their roster that can run the wildcat so we're gonna have to prove that we can stop that and if you want some comfort alan you could take some via the method of suspensions 
we were playing with a smaller defensive line than we probably otherwise would have, even in those plays, because we were short on bodies, right? We oftentimes, and you comment on this a lot during film study, we oftentimes were like uber small playing, you know, both Greenard and Zuniga. Um, we were undersized. It didn't seem to matter with regards to the push we were getting. But if you're looking for a smoking gun for me why that happened, uh, you could argue that we'll have a different package in against teams, Wildcats, in the future that will have more of your traditional run stoppers in. We were a little bit kind of like it was a third down pass rush playing in an obvious running situation. All right, with that, I think both you and I, Alan, think this defense could be really, really good. Whereas looked at the offense and thought maybe Franks will hold them back. I think look at the defense and think this defense could be right, very especially very that good. guy like Trey Dean. If he gets a little more confidence in where he's going to be, and he's got a lot of tape to watch, I think he's an excellent player and he's going to figure it out. Um, just wasn't ready week one. And again, a lot of those their big plays where we're just out of position where that's easily correctable. So a lot of hope there too. Yeah, I think Trey Dean's going to be solid. He had a tough game. He would have graded out poorly if you and I were grading him, but he improved significantly last year which tells me he's already done it once. It is way different to move in a real game into the interior part of the field. He was also playing 8 to 10 yards off the ball a lot of times. He was never doing that last year at corner. It's an entirely different skill set. Practice is not a game. I expect him to pick up and learn. Uh, and maybe the biggest thing uh, that probably you did not see at home, which you mentioned now and then want to give a double mention to, Trey Dean looks to be an excellent blitzer. Excellent. Very physical. Very quick. And that's going to be important. Your nickel blitz is one of your best blitzes. So keep an eye on that as the season rolls forward. Uh, now we want to bring in one of my one of my guys, a guy I played some flag football with, a guy that all of you know, uh, Major Wright. And we want to talk to him about the tackling. Of course, Major in his own right, Allen, was a prolific tackler, one of the hardest hitters Florida's ever had. We want to see what he thinks about the tackling. Should you be concerned? Should we be concerned moving forward? Joining us now is my friend Major Wright, national champion at Florida. Gator legend. NFL safety and Gator legend. You were at the game, Major, uh, on on Saturday. Obviously, we want to talk about a lot of things. But first of all, welcome to the program. It's always great to have you. Oh, thank you all for having me, bro. So right out of the gate, I don't even want to waste any time talking about lesser things. I want to ask the question that everyone has been talking about. I'm sure you've been talking about. The tackling in that football game by both teams was was obviously very bad. It was extremely bad on Florida's end. Is there a reason why the tackling in college football seems to get worse every year in the beginning of the season? Is there something that you can point to to say this is why the tackling is bad? I think it's, it's, it's pretty bad because nowadays teams don't practice as much tackling in practice as they should. Um, I feel like a lot of teams now is more like, you know, okay, we'll get to it when we get to it. But I feel like like the only way you get better at it is if you, you do more practicing at it. Back in the days, like, you know, when I was playing, man, we did hell of a tackling drills. Hell of a tackling Man, coaches was making up tackling drills just so we can do tackling drills, man. Man, we did low tackling. For some people that, that just didn't know how to – Low tackle, man, we did low tackling, high tackling. Man, we did everything, man. Um, and I feel like like that needs to be enforced. And um, and it's kind of hard, to be honest, because with all these rules and all these, all these restrictions behind tackling now, it, it kind of limits, you know, the way you tackle now, you know. Um, 
You know, you go in the wrong way, helmet to helmet, boom, now you out the game, now you suspended. You know, um, it's 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 tough. It's tough, to be honest. It's really tough because they make it to where, okay, you only can hit in between the numbers and and, and the stomach, you know. Um, so you can't hit the quarterback low. You can't do any of that. But now it's just hard to, you know, to to target that. So if a guy at this point in his college career is not a good tackler, can he change? Can you become a good tackler at this point in your college career? Or was this something that you had to be better at growing up? Um, basically, can you reinvent yourself on, on the college level? That's a tough question. That's a tough because, to be honest, I I don't know because, I mean, you've, you've been doing something so long of your life and for you to go to the, to, you know, to college and just for that to change, I don't know. I don't know if, if, if you could because you've been doing it so long. When you're watching the game on Saturday and you're there on the field and you're watching the tackling or the lack of tackling that's going on, what's, what's running through your mind? Tackling drill uh, come Tuesday. <laughs> I'm thinking about, man, listen, full bad Tuesday, we're going to get after it. we really going to get after it, you know. Um, that's that's just what's going through my mind, you know, because I know when we had a bad tackling game, oh, we knew what was going to happen coming up that next week in practice. We knew, you know. When you watch the guys in our current secondary, is their poor performance, would you say, more due to a lack of – technique or maybe an effort given what would you say is the main issue for them um i wouldn't say lack of technique or effort um i think they, the guys out there giving it all um i think some some you know sometimes is you know being disciplined um i know um a few times shoot we got you know we got those penalties that you know we could have we could have put the game away but we got those penalties where you know some guys that you need, you know, on the sideline. That's something that you know, you just can't do. Um, I think judgment, you know, that 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 plays a good character in too because maybe the guy didn't think he was out of bounds or you know something like that. But I think discipline, discipline is is, is something that you know um, needs to be hammered now. Now you were known for being an extremely hard hitter major. If you were playing for the Gators today. Would your game look different than it did ten years ago? Yes, it w- it would have to, because you have to adapt to the the playing style. Um, I I wouldn't have I wouldn't have been, been able to to you know make those hits that I made when you know back in the day. Now, um, they'll lock me up. <laughs> that would be the case. <laughs> You're right. So looking at looking at our safeties, the Gator safeties have been much maligned, uh, even on this podcast now for a couple of years in a row. Um, the safety play in college is tough. Safety is a hard position to play, especially now with college football becoming more sophisticated. They're they're handling more coverages, more post snap rolls. You obviously excelled as being a, a full field cover safety. You could get sideline to sideline. Um, what does it take as safety to have the confidence to be able to? To come downhill, one thing I notice on film for the Gators is our safeties seem very hesitant to want to jump on like a dig route, for example. They'll let a lot of routes get completed underneath them. What does it take as a safety to get comfortable 
knowing that you're on top of the proper route and you're not just playing center field kind of waiting as a safety valve, but you're actually actively affecting the game? Man, a lot of that is just heart, courage. Uh, I mean, I remember I had a guy ask me on, on Instagram, like, you know, major my homeboys in college, and he, he want to know, you know, what does it take to be a hard hitter? And I, I just, you know, told him, like, sometimes that, like, you know, it's just in you. Like, growing up for me, it was in me, like, to just go up. I remember, you know, in literally my first year, I was horrible. I wasn't that good. You know, I play, I did a little tackling drill called hamburger where we lay on our backs and um, we, we spread out probably like 10 yards apart. And, you know, the coach hiked the ball. I mean, he blow the whistle. We get up, you know, one of them the runner and one of them the tackler. I remember I was the runner. And um, this dude hit me so hard. Like, hit me to where I didn't want to play football no more. He hit me, man. I went home and I told my mom, like, Mom, I don't think I want to play football no more because this ain't for me. Like, you know, and ever since that day, I was like, I can't ever get hit like that again. That hurt. I don't want to feel that no more. And then, you know, I, I just got better, got better after that. But, man, I think sometimes it's just in you. Like, like that, that, like it grew. I think the dude who hit me brought it out of me. Yeah, he either he was he was gonna break you or he was gonna make you he was gonna make you tough. So take yep. me take me into one of your most famous hits of all time. Then it's the Oklahoma game in the national championship, and you you level someone on the sideline. What does that What does that feel like in a game of that magnitude to time your hit correctly? And, and just what does that do for you and your team? And what does it do to the other team when you have a big hit like that? Oh my God! It it man it impacts every play from that play on. Um, now I set the tone, not just, you know, for the DBs and everything. This is for everybody. Like, the whole team now is up and crunk and waiting for their next big play, you know. So that just set the standard of the whole game on a whole nother level, you know, because now everybody into it. You know, if you were asleep or, or if you, you know, you just was playing like, like it's today's a cool, you know, just going with the motion. Oh, that woke you up, man. And the and the opponent, man. Now, now receivers are thinking like, hey, man, I can't go across that middle because number twenty one back there. Man, if I can go across that middle, man, something might happen to me. You know, I don't want the same thing to happen to me to happen to him. <laughs> so that changed their their whole mentality of going across the middle. More drop balls like that. That hurts. You know, that hurts the team. Yeah, they felt they felt your presence. Now, Major, I wanna I wanna talk a little bit about the you know kind of playing playing safety. This is not talked about a lot, and so I think you'll shine some light on it. When you're back there, let's say you're in you're in single high, you're in a cover one, and you have to read sideline to sideline. How are you reading the field as a safety? You know, before the snap, what are you looking for? After the snap, what are you looking for? Basically, how are you deciding where to go? So before the snap, um, you're looking at the formation. You know, you seeing um, what threats you can get at you, depending on what coverage you win. You know, you say we was in cover one. Yes. Okay, cover one. I mean, you're looking at the whole formation. You know, you're looking at what routes can get on you quick. Um, who you can help. So, say you got a mismatch. So, say you got a linebacker on a on a on a slot receiver. 
you know he going to need help so you can lean towards that way because the quarterback, trust me, he knows his mismatch. He knows where he wants to go, you know, if, you know, this, 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 if, if, if everything is like, you know, it's blitz or whatever, somebody get through, he knows, man, listen, this is a mismatch I got. I got a linebacker on a receiver. I'm going here. They're going to go there 85% of the time. You know, because they, they feel like a receiver. I mean, a linebacker cannot cover a receiver. And after that, man, I check for um, – I look at the quarterback after that. You know, I look at the quarterback, try to see if he give me any 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 indications, you know, or anything. Um, and then from that shoot, I, I read – I flat for read at first, and then I give it in my backpedal, you know. So that flat foot give me, like, the three-step read. So if it's a three-step, I can come out my break a lot quicker because I didn't take any steps back. I'm just flat for reading. And then after after three steps, you know, I'm in my backpedal getting depth. And then, you know, if anybody need help, you know, that's where I'm leaning. I'm, I'm going. I've had such a great look into it. And you mentioned the three-step there, and I think that's that's a high-level technique that you don't see. I don't see week to week a lot of colleges empowering their safeties to to do as much of that um, for a variety of reasons. But that I think is what makes a big difference at the next level. All right, two two memory points here. What was your favorite moment as a Gator? My one of my favorite moments first is winning the national championship. Um, and I think just just the whole committing to Florida was was really dope, you know. Nobody in my family ever went to Florida, so I think being the first um, to go to Florida was just, like, huge for my family and me, you know. And then in the NFL, what's the biggest difference between playing safety in the NFL and playing at the college level? Man, I would say – the game speed, the speed of the game in, in the pros is just on a whole other level. Um, I mean, you have grown men out there fighting to take care of their family um, and really know what they're doing. You know, they know where to get to. They know, you know, how to work and to get to where they need to go. You know, um, sometimes in, in college, you know, you have kids doing that. You have kids. So sometimes, you know, they might not be where they need to be. But, you know, those guys in the pros, they're going to do what it takes. You know, they're going to do whatever, you know, it, it, that needs to be done to get their job done. So I think, like, the speed of the game is is totally different than college. Yeah, and that's something that all of our NFL guys will cite, and I think it's hard to – appreciate the difference oftentimes we think well that guy was great in college but like you mentioned in the nfl everything's got to be done much faster all right lastly we got to ask you a couple questions about what you think this gator football season is going to look like so based on the performance from saturday do you have any concerns moving forward for this team or do you feel like they'll get everything corrected i actually to be honest i don't even have no concerns because you know why like i have i have huge faith in in coach Coach Dan Mullen, right? We see, he see what we see. He's not, you know, he's not, well, no, 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 coach that don't know. Like, he pay attention to details. He's very detailed. Like, he knows. And I know he's going to fix that. Like, that's no doubt in my mind, Dan is going to fix that. 
So all my all of the doubts that you know people do have, and I don't have those doubts because I believe in our coach. And once you do that, man, you know, shoot, all your all your all your doubts go away. Yeah, that's an important thing, especially for the players to believe in the coach for them to get better and to improve and and to make it to where they want to make it. And so, in we'll, for, yeah, in order for them to buy into that program, they got to believe into that coach. And so do you feel a difference then between Dan Mullen and, and the previous coaches of, of uh, McIlwain and Muschamp? Oh, like yeah. being around, you can oh, feel yeah. the, yeah, it feels Big different. Time. Big time. Man, the energy around the locker room, around the stadium is much more, you know, um, a lot of the older guys coming back, um, a lot of the um, older guys that are, you know, want to be around now. And Dan is reaching out to everybody, you know, and doing that. He's making that happen. He's getting everybody back. Man, the energy is, is, is much needed. We we haven't had that same energy since since Herb left. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. No, you're right about that, and that's good to know. And so now it just is: can we can we get over the hump and beat a Georgia or an Alabama or the elite teams of the SEC, which which remains to be seen. But it seems like you think we're certainly on the right path. We will. I promise you, we will. We will. Yep. I like that. Yeah. I mean, it's the first game of the season. Man, a lot of people is just like, you know, they worried. They on their seat. They on this. It's the first game of the season. Like, you know, and and we, we wasn't playing against a sorry team. You know, the U, they rebuilding. You know, they, they went out there and played a good game, you know. Um, but we good. We good. All right. Last, for real, last question. How would you have felt if we had lost that game on Saturday? To be honest, I'd have been sick to my stomach. I would have been sick to my stomach. Yep, that that would have hurt me. I I ain't gonna even lie. Like that, that really would have hurt me. That'd have bothered me. Like you know, but it didn't happen. So you know, if was the fifth, you know, we you know we just got to keep moving and just keep building from here, and just you know take this as a learning as a learning process and just move forward and fix our mistakes and let's roll. Let's roll this right. Yeah, it's a huge difference right there between winning and losing of that game. Now we can correct the mistakes and have, have an undefeated record, whereas if you lose, you can still correct the mistakes, but things are a bit different. Well, Major Wright, like yeah, thank you. Exactly. Thank you, thank you exactly. so much for joining us, Major. It's, it's great to have you. We'll have to talk with you more throughout the season. Um, great to get your input. Great to get your, obviously, level of excitement for the team. And uh, hopefully the team will be doing a lot of tackling drills here in this bye week so that we'll be ready to roll when we play hey, in two weeks. As I know Coach Dan, I'm sure <laughs> that tackling is going to be getting done. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, Major. Well, hey, thanks again for joining us, man. We appreciate it. We talked, Alan, before the game that special teams we thought would be a, a, a strength of this team, would be excellent. They almost played a perfect game, minus the fake field goal coverage, which is, in fact, special teams. But fake punt for a conversion. Recovery by Van Jefferson, who was fantastic as a gunner on red zone special teams, along with Cleveland. He also downed a ball, right? And then Tommy Townsend is, we talked about it last year too, is fantastic at pinning Tim's deep. I mean, he is he's going to have an NFL career because that's become more and more important to the NFL. And he is... I. I I don't want to use a big word here that's too big for it, but I think it's true. He's prolific at it. He almost never kicks a touchback. And that's that's going to be a weapon all season long. Also, 
funny, Alan, I want to ask you about this. I said last week on the podcast that we weren't really like Urban on special teams, that Dan Mullen was more conservative. And maybe he listens to the pod, or I don't know what happened, but we seemed to throw caution to the wind in this game. We were almost just less milesing it at times. Uh, what did you make of special teams? How did you feel about this? Team? Yeah, I mean, it's a strength of this team, and it needs to be. We talked about that. It's even more so. I mean, putting Cleveland and uh, Van Jefferson as your gunners on punts is really aggressive. Usually that spot is like your third-team running back. Those are two of our starting receivers. Now, again, we have a plethora of guys that we could do this, but you know, it made a difference. Jefferson down that punt at the three. He was there to recover the fumble. Cleveland's right there with him. I like being that aggressive. Um, we're going to get to the fake punt here in a minute, uh, whether that was a good idea or not, but they executed it really well. It was crazy to me. The one thing that just stands out is their fake field goal. I'm often wishing we would go more aggressive at blocking a field goal. We're almost always in safe, meaning we don't have every guy on the line. We have some, just in case they fake it, we got a couple guys off. In that situation, we went after it and they burned us with it so maybe you'll never see another field goal block again unless the game is on the line but yeah overall i love this i mean mcpherson didn't really have to do much today but he's a weapon in his own right i like being aggressive on special teams when it makes sense so yeah if if this is going to be something we're going to need if we're going to beat the best teams on our schedule and i was encouraged by it yeah, I think that's the key is if you if you want to find a narrative to beat Georgia, the narrative is is special teams. The narrative is risk taking. Uh, I like putting that on film early. We need to do it. We have to do it. You cannot beat a team that's better than you by playing just like them. I think we have some unique pieces. Tommy Townsend is an athletic guy. That's helpful. He can do a lot back there. And so use him in ways that you can steal points from. And then, you know, we talked a lot about Freddie Swain being the punt returner. Of course, he did not do anything exciting. But you know what he didn't do, Alan? He didn't drop the ball. That's true. And he, you know, he looked like he was close to getting through some seams. I, again, I, I would love to have this conversation where I'm like, maybe there's great reasons, but why is Tony not at the kick returner, or excuse me, the punt returner, and why is not someone like Copeland returning kicks? Maybe Copeland sucks at it. I don't know. But I'd love to see some more variance there. I think we have some really interesting guys with our plethora of skill positions. But Swain is fine. He's going to be solid for you. Again, but we talked about aggressiveness here. I'd like to be even more aggressive in that particular area. Yeah, moving forward, Alan, I think the path is against Tennessee Martin and against the teams that you know you're going to beat. Give Tony and give those guys a chance to play themselves out of it. If, sure. If they drop a pass, then you can't do it. But in the game, week zero against Miami, we said that, you know what, Freddie Swain will not drop the punt. And he didn't. And ultimately... If you're a, if you are a Miami fan, you're probably thinking the drop punt maybe that might have been the, the key play of the game point of the game, and that was a simple fair catch on the ten yard line. Yeah, you're right. That was huge. I remember at the moment saying out loud, "Wow, we needed that. We were struggling momentum wise, and that was enormous for us." Okay, let's talk about coaching corner. We're going to analyze a few coaching decisions every week. Some weeks there's nothing really here. This week a lot. Let's go through each of the fourth down calls, and we'll start with the first one. Faking a punt, very beginning of the game, on our own 36-yard line. I don't remember how much yardage it was to pick up. Not a lot, but that's usually a place when you're a place on the field where you don't really consider it, especially at the point of the game that it was. How did you feel about that call? It's fourth and three. 
on your own 36, you assume that their offense is not very good, although they did have a nice drive against you, but it felt pretty gadgety. It didn't feel like something that was sustainable. So you're obviously thinking punt. However, I will say, and I will always say this, it's all about the look that you get, right? Like, it's a good play or a bad play based upon the look that you get. It's not just you're on your own side of the field. We lined up. There was a look that was favorable. Tommy Townsend got six yards. You could look at the film 100 times over and say maybe it was a little bit nervy, but the reality is Tommy Townsend did not get touched. So if you convert a fourth down without your punter getting touched, that's a well-executed, and I'm going to say safe, quote-unquote, play. It's a good look for you. That's not risky, right? Uh, so I like that we did it there because of the result. Now, this is an important, what does that mean because of the result? If he just gets tackled right away, that means it's a bad look to do it. But it was a good look to do it. Miami had no idea it was coming. So if you could convert a fourth down, and I'll ask you this, Alan, if you can convert a fourth down 95% of the time against that look, wouldn't you always do it? The math would tell you you'd always do that. Yeah, it's hard to say that, though. I mean, we don't, you have to be, again, the look is right. So apparently they picked up something on Phil. I think Mullen was said somewhere that they were going to fake the first punt of the game if it made sense or if Miami gave them that look. I didn't. It gave me a heart attack. I he didn't get touched, but it wasn't like he just coasted on. He had to really goose it, and if one of those guys missed one of those blocks, something. It wasn't like they were all ran down the field and he just waltzed into it, and they you know they did something really dumb. They picked it up right away. There's a guy who recognized it, so we didn't catch him completely by surprise. I just talked about being aggressive. I love going for it most of the time. I did not love that in that point of the game, but we picked it up. I'm not going to kill him for it by any means. I'm also not just a results all the time kind of person. So personally, I would not have called that. All right. I, I like this, the disagreement. I think probability wise, you know, I'm going with the EV, the expected value of the play. It did lead to a touchdown. Well, you on the way, it's one for one. You don't know. Oh, no, I'm not sample sizing it. I think against that look, like we said, 95%. I well, you made, up, you made up that number. If it is I 95%, then I would have to agree with it. Well, you didn't when I asked you the question, Alan. I think. Uh, I think it's a high percentage there that you convert that against okay. that look. I mean, we had we had a numbers advantage on the side. We actually whiffed on the block, and he still got it. So we didn't even execute it all that well. But I'm I'm not I'm not saying you're not right to say what's the reward of that. Sure. That there's not a huge reward. Okay, so now it's first down on our, on our own 40 yard line. This is a massive game swinging award. We did score a touchdown, but I think it's important to I think no matter what, however you want to debate this, you have to look at it as against that look. What's the, what are the odds you convert it? And that's the right way to look at any football play. I think a lot of football coaches don't look at things that way. There's a famous reason why Bill Belichick went for it on fourth down, didn't get it that time, was not apologetic, and, and most people didn't get it. But the reason was against the look, he felt like they were going to get it eight times out of ten, and it's worth the risk Certainly. if they get it. Um, in this case, the, the risk-reward benefit is not huge, so it does make it questionable. Uh, and obviously, if we didn't get it, Maybe we're talking about a much different thing. But I would right. like to think in my head, Alan, that I'd be objective enough to say if we didn't get it and the look was still good, I'd be okay. Sure. But maybe I'd be ranting and raving. So I'd be fine with that maybe. too. But you're right. You hit on this. Risk reward is very real there. Very real. You go for it on plus territory because if you get it, you still have a huge chance to score. Okay. Speaking of one of those, fourth and one, not quite plus territory. We were close at the 49. The I don't know if it's a jet sweep, but a, a sweep handoff to Tony. He picks it up because he basically out-athletes the guy. Do you like that call there? I like 
the tactical call. Go for it on the 49-yard line. Mm-hmm. Give a superior defense. Um, be aggressive. You should be able to pick up one yard. However, I don't know if I like it with the team we have at the stage we were at. We don't trust our offensive line yet. It's early in the game, right? That's not great. Again, if you have Tim Tebow, these are all situationally dependent, right? So fourth and one in a vacuum, I like going for it more often than not in this situation. I don't know. Maybe I punt him deep and play defense. Regardless, the play I did not like. No. A, because Miami was immensely ready for it. I mean, as soon as Tony motioned across, their whole defense shifted with him. So to me, not a good play call and a very predictable situation on the field to go for it on fourth down. They won Miami, absolutely knew it was coming. And Tony, thankfully got outside that defender right and they ran this later and they stuffed them for a a loss correct so i'm going to go with fourth and one on the 49 going for it totally fine meritable the the offensive line we have at the stage of the game with the play we have called i didn't like it there's a lot of other i would have liked to have seen a tom brady like quarterback sneak more than what i saw us do there sure i like some of the aggressive but not risky for like making some of these high leverage throws on fourth down sometimes i'm like why would you just run it theoretically Running that Tony sweep, I'm very pro. Into that look was a little questionable. Um, but it worked. Uh, fourth and one at Miami 24, the Franks run. I'm all over this. You do this 100 times out of 100. Yeah, I love this. This goes right back to what we said. This is the right play call in the right situation with a big, strong 6'6", 245-pound quarterback. I like that look. It's a good look. It should be run more often. That field goal is you know, a 46, 47-yard field goal. It's three points. Why not take the chance that if you don't get it, you probably force a three and out anyway and get decent field position. That's That, to me, is the right call. Right. And then fourth and five at the Miami 37, the Pastor Grimes. Uh, I'm a big fan of going for this. If you feel confident and you have a play that's going to pick it up. Now, if you've got – again, this all comes down to your confidence in your kicker. We have a good kicker. Maybe he's going to make that field goal. That's a pretty long field goal. So this is where it gets kind of iffy. I would have been fine with him trying either one. But I like the aggressiveness. I like going for it on fourth down. Yeah, it's a coin flip to me here, but this is a deep field goal. I think a college kicker makes this about 40% of the time at best, perfect conditions. You probably convert this about 30% of the time. So you're kind of trading off a conversion for a continued drive. I'm sure the math is almost equal. I like going for it in general if you're on the other team's 35-ish area in college. I think that's a good way to go. Uh, I think it sets a tone for how you want to play. And I'm in favor of it. Even if we didn't get that, I think that would be the right call there. And as you have in our notes here, it led to 10 points. So those were significant gambling moments for us there. Uh, and I, Mullen's shown he's going to go for it. He's going to be aggressive. And I, I like that a lot. All right, would you have challenged the Malik Davis fumble early in the game? Absolutely. I heard Mullen afterwards say that he wasn't sure. He thought maybe be one of those where there wasn't enough evidence. Well, you know what? throw the flag, and see if there's enough evidence or not. Because guess what? We saved our challenge flag for nothing. You don't get a bonus challenge flag next game. It doesn't matter. That's a huge moment in the game. You have to throw the challenge flag there. Now, to me on film, it was really, really close. Malik's on the ground. I have no idea why he's getting up. I guarantee you they will spend practice time talking about don't get up. You're not in the NFL. Just stay on the ground. He may or may not have had possession. It does not matter. If it's close, you throw the challenge flag on a, on a momentum-changing play like that one. I thought that was a definite mistake by the staff. All right, let me jump down to throwing the ball. 4.30 left in the game. Now, 
we seemingly have the opportunity to put the game away. Again, this is very situational for me. 4.30 left is an interesting spot. Like 30 seconds left, you do something different. I'm going to go first here and say I don't mind at all throwing the ball. I get much more frustrated with an uber-conservative run three times and punt. Now, if you're gashing them running the ball and you throw it, it's like, what are you doing? I don't know if he was – he said later he shouldn't have put Franks in that position. But if you've got a quarterback that you're going to lean on to win you games, you have to be willing to throw the ball on first down in that type of situation. You, you're not going to run out the clock with three runs and a punt or they're going to get the ball with like 10 seconds left. You're going to have to do something significant. And I hate turtling up in that moment. So I'm fine throwing the ball. Now, maybe you call something a little different than what got called. It looked a little confusing into that into that coverage. So maybe that wasn't the right call. But again, hindsight's twenty twenty in that. But I don't have a problem at all. Now, he, he said he shouldn't have done it, but I don't necessarily agree with that. I have no problem throwing the ball either at that stage of the game. In fact, Miami had, I believe, still two timeouts. You're going to have to convert three first downs to really drain the clock down to something. We had not been running the ball successfully at all. I think what you do here, Alan, is you you do what the numbers tell you to do. That's what you do. I hated the play call. So one scouting tip that I want all of you listening to follow is take a look at how often Felipe Franks throws the ball to what we're calling the strong side, or we're going to really call it the the heavy numbers side of the field. So we told you earlier that he likes to throw to the weaker side or the fewer numbers side of the field, whether it's either going to be just a running back or a receiver or just a tight end and a receiver. On that play, we had four guys loaded up, plus a motion guy come across in Grimes. So we heavy loaded that right side and made Franks look into it. I just don't think Frank sees the field well. So I think when you're asking him to look into that, you've got problems. It seems like that's actually part of our game plan, Alan, is not to have him read into that. Now we need to. I'm here arguing the same breath that you need to have him complete those passes if we want to win. But when you're up with 430 left, why are we running a play that's a little gadgety where Grimes actually becomes like a second quarterback into the heavy side where Franks doesn't see the field well? Well, also Miami seemed to be in a different coverage than they were in often. That was a a little bit of a confusing look. So maybe it was just very bad timing, very bad choice, all wrapped into one. Yeah, it just seemed like a bad play call choice, though, because previously you had hit the big plays, you had completed passes, and then you kind of go to like a gadgety formation. I think I think we had a lot of success with the twin receiver and single receiver set, and we all of a sudden went to a heavy load set, which we tried a lot in the first half. It didn't work very well. So throwing on first down, not a problem. The look itself given the way you'd managed the whole game, given how Franks was almost never looking at the heavy side, it seems a little questionable to force one to that side. With that being said, it's certainly not Dan Mullen's fault that Franks tries to fit a pass into Kyle Pitts. By the way, he was not throwing the ball away. He can say he was trying to throw it away all he wants. That's an absolute false, you know, false accounting of the story. You can watch it on film for yourself. He's definitely trying to throw the ball to Kyle Pitts at the sideline, who was, all the, was absolutely not open, probably going to be picked no matter what. But he locks into him. Pump fake, locking on the rail shot. Um, even if you complete the rail, Allen, it does not win you the game. And I think that's the real situation there. Again, quarterback game management. You're not winning the game there with a 20-yard rail throw. You need to just get first downs. So throwing, running, whatever it takes to get a first down, totally fine. There's plenty of time left. But particular play call the way it went down, obviously not so good. 
Okay, let's talk about any other bright spots. We've mentioned a lot of these guys. Anybody who we haven't talked about that you wanted to highlight? We didn't talk too much about Pirine because he didn't get to do a whole lot, but I thought he did the most of what he had. I mean, he obviously dropped, you know, um, that little sort of pitch. Well, that was Malik Davis. Yeah, sorry, Malik Davis signed him. Um, But whether or not... Yeah, you're right. Then he played a perfect game. There he goes. He, he played a great game in pass protection. I thought he caught he caught the pass where he gets absolutely leveled with a terrible decision to even catch that. So he shows off his hands. He scores a touchdown. Right. That pass, the go-ahead touchdown, was a great piece of route running and catch by him. Correct. So he was extremely solid. I thought he evaded several tackles in the backfield just to make something out of nothing. Quick little feet, good moves. So I thought he looked nice. I thought he looked better than he's looked in the past. Uh, and, and that was a nice bump for me. And then I thought Hammond, who often gets overlooked, continues to be fantastic. He's open all the time. On film, he's maybe one of our most open wide receivers. Freddie Swain was also open almost all game and basically never got the ball. The one time he did get the ball, uh, you know, bad pass. Probably still Allen should have caught that pass. It was definitely catchable. Uh, so I'm not going to say it was a bright spot, but a guy that could have had a much bigger game. Yeah, Hammond, we talked about that from the Felipe angle of throwing the ball. But that was still a not the easiest catch to pull that down full speed. I think that's sometimes why people overlook him because he, you know, had that been Grimes, he probably dust them into the end zone, but he certainly took the top off and got by that linebacker with ease. So yeah, if you want to make money in the NFL, primarily you're a route runner and then you're a great pass catcher and Hammond's route running is not elite. His hands are elite. He does not drop a pass. And I think that was a massive play, biggest play of the game. And he made it. And so he gets overlooked a lot, but biggest play of the game. And the guy I thought we would be talking about a ton Kadarius Tony has a highlight that will go on his reel forever of a ton of highlights of him breaking down every Miami guy. Loved it. You saw the strength and the speed. You know, Miami busted that coverage, we realized too. But that should have been 15 yards, and he turned it into a 60 something yard play. So fantastic job by him on that. We ran to him close. We never threw it to him again, which is strange. Would have liked to see that. Certainly some more. We've mentioned Greenard Moon Zuniga was also living in the backfield. He played an excellent game. Um, also highlighted Miller and Houston. Those guys emerging as reliable linebackers is huge for us. Last year when we took David Reese out of the game, it was like everyone hold your breath when Jackson was in there. This year, it it's fine. Reese takes a couple plays off. He's gonna he can't play every snap. It doesn't feel like we fall off a cliff without him in there. Um, and I thought Kyrie Campbell played in or played well. Um, you didn't see a ton of like highlights from him and Schuler, but I think they acquitted themselves nicely. Uh, a lot of guys to highlight on the defense on the front seven, as much as as many problems as we had on the back set or back half of the defense. Was this game to put some final thoughts into this, to put some context into what happened, Alan? Was this game a coach's dream? And what I mean by that is you get a win over your rival. You get a team that's maybe believing their press clippings. They're riding so hot. Felipe Franks is a dark horse candidate for the Heisman. The team's a dark horse for the playoffs. And then you basically obliterate all of that. And now no one thinks you're really very good. You were completely overrated. The rebuilding process is not where people thought it was. You're kind of you're kind of trash. Is this the dream scenario for a good football coach? I think so. You outlined it well there. I mean, one of the challenges for a college football coach is managing egos and expectations which is almost impossible to do with a hundred guys on your team. But those guys are going to see the tape. They've already seen it. I'm sure it's Monday afternoon right now. They're going to see a lot of stuff. They need to clean up a lot of stuff. And so I think 
it's best place for this team to be humbled and hungry. You talk about the disease of more where after you win, it's tough. And not that we won a championship, but we had a good season last year. There's a lot of talented guys on the team. We're starting off in the top 10. It's great for these guys to realize that they still have room to grow if they're going to get to the places that they want to get to. Um, if we had waxed Miami, I don't know that they have that feeling. Maybe then we step in overconfident to some places. You know, Desmond Howard said maybe we're overlooking Miami. I was like, how can we be overlooking them? It's the first game of the season. We've been talking about it for months. Uh, I don't know if they're overlooking it, but maybe they would have gotten there at some point in the season. So, yes, maybe best case scenario. For as sloppy and as crazy as that game was, I think our coaching staff will appreciate all the teaching moments that they got. Assuming that the coaching staff is able to get everything done that we want them to do, which I'm going to assume they will, this was oddly, Alan, the best case scenario for a flawed team. The best actual case scenario was was like hope becomes reality, where Franks is you know the second coming of a Heisman Trophy winner. But let's let's look at reality. This team, a flawed team, like we talked about, holes across the board. But fewer holes than a lot of other teams, which is why they're ranked where they are, has a forgettable game that will now be memorable as a teaching point, all while costing them nothing. They go 1-0. Who cares if you're terrible? Who cares if the whole country thinks you're terrible? Well, you know what? Now you think you're terrible, which means you're going to work a lot harder. You recognize your dream of winning the SEC is much further away than you thought it was. If we don't turn the ball over, we beat Miami 35-10. That's smoke and mirrors. We wouldn't have been nearly as good as the team thought we were. So this, I think, does become the coach's dream. It becomes a way to be able to move forward and make your team better, all while keeping them very, very hungry. And you can say, look, if you thought you were good, you're not. You almost lost to a team that's not ready to beat you. And you've got a bunch of other teams now that think they're going to beat you. All you've done is make Tennessee and Missouri and any other team look at Florida and go, well, that team? (laughs) We're going to beat that team. So it sets the stage very nicely. Uh, for them to improve. And you heard Major Wright talk a lot about tackling. I don't have concerns for the tackling. I think it will get better, like we talked about. We watched it happen last year. Uh, I think you're going to see a lot of that practicing going on. It's hard to say for sure, Alan, why the tackling is so bad, other than to definitively say you tackle a lot less in fall camp than you once were because it's mandated by the NCAA. So obviously, if you practice something less, as Major said, you're just not going to get the same result. So in a way, this is the best case scenario for us for this particular team, a team that is not going to win a national championship, but maybe now you can get them to their ceiling because they're all going to become very humble and very hungry. So with that, Alan, last week we predicted our win totals. Do you want to keep your season win total for the Gators the same after seeing this game, or do you want to change it? I want to keep it the same. I predicted 9-3. and three. I, The offensive line actually... I think brightened our expectations or at least raised our floor for me. I don't think we're going to fall off a cliff. Uh, Nine and three is I'm right there. If I were to go in either direction, I'd actually bump it up to 10 and two, but I'm going to hold it nine and three. What about you? I'm going to keep mine right there at 10 wins. Uh, We talked a lot. The reason I was picking 10 wins wasn't because I thought our team was particularly top heavy or super strong, but the teams we're playing have more questions than we do. The offensive line is a major reason why. The emergence of Sean Davis is a major reason why. Uh, I think if those guys can play the right players, the coaches can play the right players in the right positions, this team should be favored over the teams we're playing. And look, let's not take something lightly here, Alan. We turned the ball over four times. We got out-possessed by 12 minutes. 
We played maybe the worst possible game that we could play. We gifted them turnovers. Miami gifted us stuff too. Let's not be wrong. But you would have expected that from Miami. That's what people expected. Very, very young football team. Brand new coaches across the board. But for us, we played as bad as we possibly could have played. Now, this is important here. That doesn't mean that we should be stoked.